if I haven't met you. Uh, wonderful to be uh, reading and, 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 and looking at God's Word together. Now, as we begin, I wonder uh, what it is you think of when you hear the word victory. What is it that you think of when you hear the word victory? Now, perhaps it's the Olympian that you think of, standing on the podium with the gold medal around their neck, a wreath around their head. Maybe you have images of a climber reaching the summit of a mountain. Or maybe uh, it's captured in the celebration of overcoming years of struggle. It might be study. It might be finally paying off that debt. It might be a political campaign. It might even be sickness, perhaps. Uh, One particular sports brand has put a lot of money to promote themselves with this idea of victory. And let me show you this uh, short video. Bear with the poor quality, um, but hopefully you, you catch it there. got that there, having a bit of, Adidas having a bit of play on Nike. Uh, But the idea of victory, the idea of victory is so compelling, isn't it? The main characters of every great story, whether it's a TV show, movies, the books that we read, have characters usually on some journey to achieve victory. We've got um, Luke Skywalker over the dark side. We've got Simba over Scar, and we've got the Raiders over the Roosters. But what about victory? What about victory for you in the Christian life? How should we think about victory? If you think about it for a moment, if we follow Jesus, aren't we victors? After all, we follow a conquering king. We follow the God of the universe, and and those things are true. So how should victory look like in our lives? The passage read out for us from John chapter 12 gives some pretty weighty insights on the topic. And and I hope you're intrigued by that, because it's really important. And so for a roadmap for our time together, uh, we've got three points that we're going to look at that are in your outlines. It's also going to be on the screen behind me. We're going to look at the timing of victory, the pathway of victory, and the effects of victory, yeah? Timing, pathway of, and the effects of victory. So keep your Bibles open at, that, uh, at the passage that was read out to us by Wendy, and let's pray as we reflect together on God's Word to us. Father, we thank You that You speak. You speak to us. You're not passive. You're not distant. And in the words that we have on this page, uh, You have something for us to hear. And so, Father, I pray that you would be speaking loudly and clearly and powerfully to us and that we would be uh, humble and sensitive and willing to listen. Father, we pray that we might be people that uh, think about this this topic of victory carefully um, and help us to live in light of them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Uh, let's begin with looking at uh, the first point, the timing of victory, the timing of victory. Now, in case you weren't aware, um, uh, John chapter 12, um, this biography of Jesus by this man, John, uh, it's the last week we're going to be looking at this book this year. Uh, the reason for that is John chapter 12 is, is kind of a halfway point in the book. Uh, it concludes the part of the biography where Jesus uh, has been among the people. He's been giving signs to the people and clues about who he is. And so gradually, in the life of Jesus' ministry, from chapter 2 onwards, Jesus has been revealing more and more of who he is. Right? He's, he's said to people who have been listening, who he is. He, he's given multiple testimonies to prove who he is. He's performed these miracles and signs to show who he is. And so as we now reach John chapter 12, uh, this time of speaking, this time of demonstrating reaches a bit of a climax. Now, if you remember back to last week in John chapter 11, Jesus has just performed his most powerful miracle yet. He has physically raised the dead. He physically raised Lazarus, who'd been decaying and rotting in a tomb for four days, from the grave before a bunch of people, all to show that the people who are in him, who are with him, they will live. He did that to show that. And, now, and I know that's, that's a massive, massive claim. And so if you didn't have a chance to hear last week's talk, jump online to the website, have a listen. It's free if you've missed it. But that's kind of what's been happening in this biography up till now. Jesus has been telling and showing people who He is. He's just done this immense miracle. And so you can probably imagine there's, there's now a, a bit of a, a massive groundswell of people that are fascinated by Jesus. There's a massive groundswell of people wanting to follow Jesus. It's at an all-time high at this particular point. See, people have realized that Jesus is not just a healer. Jesus is not just a prophet. Jesus is somebody who can physically raise the dead. See, if there was ever a time to claim victory, if there was ever a time to be glorified, if there was ever that moment for Jesus to seize, now would be it. If Jesus had a political advisor, any half-decent one, they would be telling him, now's the time, you do it, you've got the following. And as we come to John chapter 12, we see a little bit of that taking shape. In verses 1 to 3, Jesus Jesus is anointed right, by an expensive perfume worth about a year's wage by Mary, just as the kings in the Old Testament were often anointed. Right? Later in verses 12 to 13, you've got these great crowds who are now fascinated on, that Jesus is coming. He's coming to Jerusalem. They take these palm branches, which is a symbol of nationalism for the Jews, ruling and conquering of a returning king. And they are shouting in Jesus' direction that He is that King. Like a triumphant King returning home, Jesus is greeted as the saving one. See, these are incredible moments. These are incredible moments of victory. For just about anybody else, these are moments to savor. The crowds, the anointing, the cries to be King. But Jesus doesn't see it that way, weirdly enough. Because, because for Jesus, timing is everything. And for Jesus, the time was not yet right. Or in the language of John, in this biography, the hour had not yet come. Um, we've looked at John, this gospel, this biography, for chunks at a time this year. And so it's kind of easy to forget. But Jesus has said a number of times now that his hour had not yet come. 
Back in chapter 2, in the miracle where Jesus turns uh, water into, into lots and lots and lots of wine, he says to his mother, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, he says, my hour has not yet come. In chapter 4, Jesus tells a Samaritan woman that a time, or you can translate it as an hour, is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And again, in chapter 8, we see that no one sees Jesus because His hour had not yet come. Right? In other words, up till now, the timing wasn't right. The timing for Jesus to be glorified, the timing for Jesus to enter victory had not yet come. But here in John chapter 12, for the very, very first time, and this is why John chapter 12 is such a significant chapter in the biography, Jesus says in verse 23, have a look with me, verse 23, He says, the hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come. The time of victory and glory for Jesus has moved from being something that is in the future to something that, that has now entered the present. And so we've got to think, what, what triggers this shift? What, why does Jesus now say, the hour has come? What makes Jesus, weeks after this triumphant entry into Jerusalem, now say that, that the time has come to be glorified? Well, John tells us. In verses 20 to 22, we see that there are Greeks who come along. Those people who aren't Jews... And as they come along, these Greeks, they act as a trigger for Jesus to recognize that His time of glory has begun. In other words, it's the fact that the world has come. Well, people that represent the world, at least. People and nations that extend beyond the Jewish community, they have come to see and speak with Jesus. Now, just, just for a second, if you compare that moment with the last two events, the anointing, the entry into Jerusalem... A conversation of some non-Jews to the disciples seems, you know, pretty insignificant. What, why is that a big deal? Why, why is that the trigger point for Jesus to say, my victory, my time of glory has come? Well, we'll come back to that a bit later, but one of the big takeaways we've got to, take, we've got to see immediately about victory in the Christian life is that it is rarely in the moments and times that we would typically think are victories. That's extremely, extremely important. Victory in the Christian life is rarely in the moments and times that we would typically see as victories. That's kind of a difficult concept to grapple with, right? And so we're going to flesh that out more as we come to our second point, the pathway of victory, the pathway of victory. Um, have, keep, keep verse 23 there. We're going to read it again. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, what would you expect this hour of glorification to look like? Just instinctively for a second, what would you say? Right? For me, um, it'd have to be something glorious. It'd have to be something spectacular. If I was just to pause for a second, everything I knew about Jesus, you know, I, I would think that the hour of glorification would be something like Jesus you know, doing something amazing, like lifting up a mountain with His hands. Or, or maybe Jesus doing something amazing like splitting the ocean into two with His voice. I've clearly been watching too many superhero movies. But even if we were to answer that from a bit more of a Christian perspective, what would we expect an hour of glorification to look like? Right? 
maybe his resurrection. That kind of ticks the box, wouldn't it? That's glorious, that's spectacular, that's impressive. Or or maybe Jesus' ascension. That's glorious, that's supernatural, that's amazing. Both of those seem to be very clear moments that could be this victory that Jesus is talking about. But what does Jesus say? Because he goes on to tell us in verse 24, have a look with me, verse 24, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. I mean, what's going on? For, for Jesus, his moment of victory, the moment he is glorified, is in his coming crucifixion. In other words, Jesus sees his greatest moment of victory in his death. And so he compares that with a seed, a single kernel of wheat that will not produce any other seeds unless it first dies. Right? If you think about it, it makes sense. Any seed that's sown in one sense, kind of dies, right? It decomposes into the ground before new seeds sprout. The seed must decompose before new life is born. And so Jesus is saying He's the seed that has to die so that new seeds can be born. See, Jesus understands that that is His moment of glorification. His death on the cross is tied with His greatest moment of victory. Now, friends, I wonder... I wonder, does that surprise you? Does that surprise you? Maybe at one level it doesn't. It's worth pausing here for a moment because sometimes reading the Bible from a 21st century viewpoint, from our eyes, is, is a bit of a disadvantage because we sometimes read our understanding of things back into the text, right? Because it's not difficult to look at the crucifixion of Jesus on a wooden cross as something that's victorious. I mean, after all, the, the, the cross has become so much of a symbol for the church, right? It's, it's at the top of beautiful architectural buildings. It's often the centerpiece of a deliberately designed chapel, not, not this one particularly. Uh, but if you've had experiences growing up in the Catholic or Orthodox traditions, you, you'd know that your priests have large, shiny crosses around their necks. Maybe if, you were, if you've been baptized or, or, or dedicated, um, you were given cross-shaped jewelry as a kid or when you were baptized. See, all that sort of idea of the cross wasn't the case in the first century when Jesus lived. The cross was offensive in the first century. Death on the cross was reserved for scum. Slaves, traitors, the worst of criminals. If, if, we were to take, if we were to take our pieces of jewelry and architecture back to the first century, at the very best, it would have been seen as extremely dark and violent humor. It's far more likely that it would have been interpreted as even more shocking than if we walked around wearing jewelry or having our architecture designed in the shape of a mushroom cloud of a nuclear bomb. And yet, this is the very time that Jesus speaks of his victory. If it doesn't surprise you, it's meant to. It's meant to. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus was looking forward to it, right? This is no happy hour, obviously. We see that in Jesus' prayer in verse 27. 
Right? Jesus, just like he does in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you know it, he prays that his Father would save him from this hour. Jesus fears it. He dreads it. He wants it, if at all possible, to, 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 to not come. He wants to bypass the, his death to come. See, friends, Jesus' hour of victory, his time of glory, is not something spectacular like we would think. It's his death. It's not even something that Jesus is looking forward to. Because it's the hour he'll be lifted up to die. Now, if we were to read on ahead, uh, which we will next year when we come back to this gospel, every moment that links to Jesus' death is disappointing. Right? If we, at a glance, right, if we read it, Jesus is betrayed by one of his closest friends. He's rejected by the religious leaders of his very own people who claim to worship God. The political powers ignores his innocence and allow their soldiers to do whatever they want with him. He's other friends left him to die and deserted him. And then he's nailed, naked and bloody, to a cross. His life, at its very end, is absolutely tragic. His life, at his end, looks like an utter failure. The one who was anointed in this chapter, the one who's cried to be king, the saving one, by the masses, is now left to die in humiliation. At first glance, there's nothing victorious here. And yet Jesus, again, says that this is his time of glory and victory. Why? Right? It's almost as if Jesus is insane. Why does Jesus believe that this is his moment? Well, in verses 31 and 32, Jesus gives us some pretty profound reasons why he believes the key moment of victory is at his death on the cross. Read it with me. Verse 31 to 32, Jesus says, Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And in verse 33, we see that. That's what he's talking about, his death. This is all very key. Jesus gives four huge reasons as to why he sees his victory and glory at his death. And so we're going to take some time to explain each of the four different reasons that Jesus gives. Uh, the first reason he gives is that the world is judged at Jesus' death. Right? That's the first reason he gives. Why this is victory? The world is judged at his death. Now, um, that might not sound like something to be excited about, but this judgment is both a positive thing and a negative thing. Right? Um, what do I mean? Well, negatively... Humanity, the world, will be judged because it nails the very Son of God to a cross. Right? It's not difficult to see that we've rebelled against the ways of God in the way that we've hurt Him. We hurt His world. We hurt each other. But the cross, where Jesus dies, is, is the ultimate rebellion, right? By condemning Jesus to die, the world literally hammered the, the, in the final nails on their judgment of God. The world was willing to hang the Son of God to die. And so confrontingly and negatively, the cross of Jesus rightly judges the world for its action. And within that is judgment for all of us. Now, that's a sobering thought. It's a weighty thought, and we shouldn't move too quickly from it. But there's also an incredible positive that comes. See, in that death on the cross, even though it rightly judges all of us, the cross also is the place where the innocent is judged in place of the guilty. 
In his death, Jesus dies as the one seed to secure the lives of the many seeds. In what can only be described as the supernatural love of God, Jesus, the Son of God, willingly says, although you condemn me to die and yourself to judgment on this very cross, I willingly choose to be judged and die in your place. Jesus says, I willingly choose to be judged and die in your place. There are some of you today who are here who are yet to know and receive this supernatural love of God. There are some of you who do not know the wonder and beauty of God's love for you at the cross. And if that's you, would you receive this beautiful news today? Know that the King of the universe died for you. He was judged in your place and He did it while you were still His enemy. And so would you come? But that's not the only way that Jesus' death is a time of victory. At the cross, Jesus secondly um, drives out the prince of the world, Satan. He drives Satan out. Um, What initially seems a bit like a checkmate move of Satan, he's nailed the Son of God to the cross to die, is actually the place where Satan is dethroned of his power and his downfall actually begins. And there's so much to say about it that it it can easily be a talk all by itself. But I'll just say this, right? Satan's power over humanity has always been his ability to accuse us of our guilt and wrongdoing. That's always been his power. He's known as the great accuser. He knows what, how, and where we've rebelled against God. And he can hold it over you and me because he'd be right. But, but... If the one who never rebelled was judged in place of us, if God the Son, Jesus, willingly was judged as if He were guilty in His death, what does that mean? Well, it means that those who Jesus died in place of, they're free from accusation. We become free of Satan's condemnation. And Jesus takes our place on the cross. We receive His righteous robes and He takes our filthy rags. And so, friends, Satan can no longer accuse you or me. His power has been dethroned at Jesus' death, and all he's got left is to try to deceive us and lie to us and tempt us into thinking that that's no longer the case, that that hasn't happened. He's, he's trying to trick us because of, that's all he's got. It's scraps. It's leftovers. See, because of the cross, the wound in the heart of evil becomes mortal. He will die. And it begins at the cross. What a momentous victory that at the death of Jesus, the world is judged, Satan is dethroned, but that's not all. We also see that the nations come at Jesus' death. It's not a coincidence that we see the Greeks coming at the beginning of our reading that Wendy read for us. They want to see Jesus. And that triggers this hour of victory. This triggers this hour of glory. And it's also not a coincidence that we never see Jesus actually respond to them. He doesn't speak back to them. He doesn't answer them. See, while these people knew they wanted to meet with Jesus, they did not know that in order for them to truly see Jesus, that is to truly be with Jesus, to belong with Jesus, it would take His death for them, for Jew and non-Jew alike, to be able to truly approach Him and to be with Him. Jesus knew that. And so that's why He begins to talk about His death. Because while they want to see Him, while they want to approach Him, 
they can't until Jesus has died for them. See, it's by his death that we can all approach God again. Because of his death, all nations can now approach God. All nations can know God. This is a victory that comes at the cross. And so fourthly then, if at Jesus' death we can be spared, Satan is dethroned, the nations can draw near, then it makes all the sense in the world that it is by his death that Jesus is lifted up. And it's a bit of a wordplay because, he's, you know, he's both lifted up because he'll be lifted up on a cross, but he'll be lifted up because he's exalted through his death. For Jesus, his victory doesn't come after his crucifixion. Jesus' victory doesn't come after his suffering. It becomes because of his crucifixion and because of his suffering. I love how one writer phrases it. He says that for Jesus, the cross is a throne. His crucifixion is his coronation. And he reigns from the tree. See, friends, if you put it all together, what looks like a failure, what looks like weakness, what looks like defeat and shame is actually the most powerful, victorious, and glorious moment in all of human history. But nobody looking at Jesus as he was dying had any idea that that's what they were looking at. All they would have been able to see is darkness and pain. Nobody could have seen that God was working so powerfully in and through something so dark and so shameful. But Jesus' pathway of victory was one of death. He wanted to avoid it if all possible. But it was through that path that justice was done, Satan is defeated, the nations can come, and that he would be lifted up and exalted. See, friends, if, there is, if this is where victory is supremely seen, in Jesus, um, if it comes not in the most logical of places or where we expect to see it most, or in the trajectory of victory that the world thinks of, um, then why should we expect any different for our lives? Why should, we feel, why should we expect that victory in our lives is seen by some other route? Um, in fact, we don't have time to go, over, go through it. Um, the rest of John 12 will look, just, um, will look at just how so many will not believe because they can't see this. They can't understand with their hearts what Jesus has come to do. And so the pathway of victory for the Christian is the way of the cross. It's often unseen. To the the world, it will make very little sense. But it's the way of the cross that is one of victory and glory. So knowing this, though, if, if that is true, knowing this, this has tremendous practical impact for our lives. And so we turn to our third point, the effects of victory. The effects of victory. See, we see time and time again, and I just hinted at it then, in the New Testament, that Jesus' followers ought to expect their lives to follow the pattern of Jesus' life. Yeah? That Jesus' followers ought to expect their lives to follow the pattern of Jesus' life. And Jesus says that in, in our passage today, verse 26. He says that whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. Jesus is telling his followers, I'm going the way of the cross. That's the path of victory. Follow me, and you're going to come this way also. See, if we want to go the way of Jesus, which many of us here have said, that's what I want to do, we also go the way of the cross. And I know it will sound a little bit odd, but in in, in a lot of ways, this is tremendously reassuring. Let me explain. Um, I don't know about you, but 
if I look at my life, it doesn't feel particularly glorious. The world that I live in that surrounds me doesn't often feel that glorious either. The world is difficult. It's hard. It's often dark. And I know some of your stories. Uh, Pain is something that is familiar to a lot of you. Disappointment, discouragement, illnesses, physical or mental. Those things are often part and parcel of our lives or the lives of those that are nearest and dearest to us. And that's even before we look at the issues beyond us in the wider world. And I wish, I almost wish that I was simply being pessimistic here. But that's the state of my life, that's the state of the world around me. And maybe that's the state of your life. But see, friends, if we see the path of victory for the Jesus follower is the way of the cross, as Jesus says it is, then victory for the Christian means that there is great glory and victory to be found in those moments. Having those moments that don't look particularly glorious aren't some sign that we're lacking in life or lesser in some way as Christians, even though the world might think that it does. You just imagine the churches in the East Asia region where one of our mission partners are, or the churches in the North African region that the Chungs have just gone to. There are churches in both these areas that are facing tremendous persecution. Are they somehow lesser? Of course not. And while we don't face anywhere near what the persecuted church in many parts of the world face, the cross shows us that similarly, some of our greatest victories, some of our most glorious moments, they're not going to appear glorious. They're not going to feel glorious. Now, that's not to say that there isn't victory to be seen elsewhere, but for the Christian, because of the victory of Jesus on the cross for us, we recognize that some of our greatest victories will often be in the mundane, ordinary, painful struggles of life. Does your life not look particularly glorious? The cross shows us that we can be at our most glorious and most victorious, even in those unglamorous circumstances. See, if all this is true, if all this is true, let me suggest two ways we can respond today. Yeah, two ways. The first way is this. For some of us here today, we need to repent from desiring to follow victory in the shape of the world rather than the shape of the cross. For some of us today, we need to repent from desiring to follow victory in the shape of the world rather than the shape of the cross. You might have heard of the prosperity gospel, otherwise known as the health and wealth gospel, where the belief is that God not only restores you, but also wants you to have your best life now. God is the genie in the lamp that gives you the best health, the best assets, the best jobs, the best of everything if you trust Him. It's far from the truth where the ultimate victory of God is seen in the suffering of a a cross. And it's a destructive belief. And I can comfortably say that I think no one here embraces the prosperity gospel in its full-fledged form. But perhaps a little bit controversially, many of us have unknowingly embraced the softer prosperity gospel. One that isn't so obvious and more accepted among the community of believers. Now, here are some diagnostic questions for you to consider whether you've embraced forms of a softer prosperity gospel. Friends, if you encounter suffering, would you find yourself beginning to question how God could let this happen to you? 
Do you see sufferings or setbacks as an intrusion in your life that shouldn't be there? Do you have some belief that God owes you because you've worked hard for Him? That because you've worked hard for Him, He ought to work hard for you by providing whatever. A job, a steady stream of finances, health, healing from sickness, a family, a spouse, children, grandchildren. Does God, do you feel like God owes you in some way because you've worked hard for Him? Would you want heaven without God? See, if I could hypothetically offer you the opportunity to enjoy this world as, as it is, where you would never die, you could enjoy this world, all the sports, all the shopping, all the games, all the food, all the holidays, and anything else you'd like, you could ride this merry-go-round of this world forever, but without God. Would you take it? Friends, if you know deep down the answers to any of these questions are more likely to be yes than no, be wary that you are likely embracing a subtle and softer version of the prosperity of gospel in your relationship with God. Now, these are some of the ways we move towards thinking about victory in our lives, shaped like the world around us rather than shaped by the cross. If this is you, if this is you, can I urge you to repent today? In the quietness of your hearts, pray a prayer of repentance to God. Or come and speak to one of the pastors after the service who'd love to pray with you. So that's the first thing I want to suggest to us. If, if, if this victory is found in, in the cross, please, please repent. But for others, others of us, others of us here today, we need to pray for God's help to continue to see and live cross-shaped lives. We need to pray for God's help to continue to see and live cross-shaped lives. This is something we all need to grow in. And we need God's help. Living cross-shaped lives of victory is difficult when the world is telling us that following Jesus is foolishness. It's not worth doing. We need the strength of God to help us to live cross-shaped lives and His eyes to see that our day-to-day lives are opportunities to live the victory of the cross. And I'm, I'm, greatly to encourage, I'm greatly encouraged to see pockets of that, even within our church. Right? I've seen the determination that some of you have to do what is God-honoring and what is obedient to the Father and not go with what's convenient for you, even though no one sees it. That's glorious. That's victory in the eyes of God. I've seen determination of some of you to stay faithful in marriages that are difficult. To choose to love, to serve, to be gracious, to be generous, to be servant-hearted, even when there is immense pain, hurt, and grief. Always get help if you need it, but continue to wrestle and work with the marriage, because that's a glorious cross moment, do you see? I've seen the determination from some of you who find it incredibly difficult to come to church or to a community group or to some form of fellowship. It could be because you are incredibly introverted. It could be that you might have social anxiety. Things might be really busy for you in some way, and yet you make every effort. You put yourself out there every week, and in the eyes of God, that's glorious. There are some of you who come from difficult homes and difficult backgrounds, and as you continue to persevere in those relationships, as you remain committed to being gracious, showing patience, and even reconcile if and when is appropriate, in the eyes of God, that is glorious. There are others who are in the midst of a dark place. It might be mental, mentally ill, being mentally ill, depression, anxiety. It might be a recent thing. It might be a chronic thing. And while you look for ways to manage it and improve, you still cling to Jesus, even if it's by one finger. 
and you still trust in the goodness of God even in that darkness. That is an amazing, glorious cross moment. And there are so many more. But I want you to see, church, that there are opportunities all around your life to live gloriously and victoriously in the shape of the cross. Would you pray that God might open your eyes to see? Because if you pray that prayer, that God would help us to see and live the mundane, ordinary, and even broken, disjointed aspects of life, cross-shaped, where it rarely appears to be glorious in the moment, we'll slowly begin to make the most of those opportunities, despite being a world filled with hurt, pain, and discouragement. Because it is in those moments there is often a concealed way for us to love God and love others, shaped in the likeness of the victory of the cross. Let me close by looking at the Apostle Paul, the writer of half of the New Testament. He speaks on this exact topic. He speaks at the end of his second letter to the Corinthians by reflecting about a thorn that is in his side. Uh, We don't know what exactly it is, but that thorn is something that disables him, that's something that torments him, and it's something that he wishes would go away. And so he says three times, three times, Paul writes, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. It's not that my power is made perfect when I deliver you from all weakness. It's not my power is made perfect when you are rescued decisively from setbacks and sufferings. No, it's my power is manifest in weakness. And so Paul continues, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That is someone who sees and lives the victory and glory of the cross. And I pray that we would grow to live and know that same victory. Let me pray. Father God, This is a difficult thing to hear. That victory and glory can come out of the darkest and hardest places. And yet as we see Jesus accomplish the greatest victory in human history in something as terrible as a crucifixion on a cross. Father, we pray that as we follow this Lord, that we wouldn't run away from that. We wouldn't feel that we somehow deserve different. We wouldn't somehow feel that uh, we, 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 we know and should deserve better. Father, if that is the case, help us to repent. And Father, would you give us eyes to see all the opportunities around us to live victoriously in a cross-shaped way. Help us to live uh, the life that you've called us to. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.